One of the questions concerning the Christian life that reoccurs in every generation, in every generation of Christians, the same issue comes up, and it comes up because it's a new generation. Every, 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 every new wave of people who become Christians face this issue, this question, and that is, now that I'm a Christian, what does the law of God have to do with me? Am I somehow still under God's law? Or can I just forget the law now that uh, I'm experiencing grace? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul ran into that in the first generation of Christians. And I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we make our way through this book, we've come to a section where he talks about the law and how it, how it relates to us who are Christians. But we find it in the context of him trying to, to help Timothy to correct the, the, the mistaken teachers who were teaching in that church in Ephesus. I'm going to read verses 6, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 6 through 11. It says, but, well, I'm going to start at verse 5. Thank you. But the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's very interesting here. In this passage, you'll see it talks about the law and it talks about the gospel. There in the, in the beginning, <clears throat> well, he, he gets there in verse 7. He says these these. These teachers that he's trying to correct, these te- they want to be teachers of the law. They're t- they want to teach the law. And then in verse 8, though, Paul is saying, but the law is, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So he's speaking about the law. But then in verse 11, he comes to the gospel. It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been experienced. Law and gospel law and gospel how do those fit together how is it meant to fit together and i want to organize our thoughts uh this morning about uh, around two assertions that paul is making he said he's saying that we need to use the law properly and we need to view the gospel rightly let me take them one at a time use the law properly i want to make three 
That's how I got the right amount of fingers here. Three, three observations about this. Use the law properly. Look again at verse 8. For we know that the law is good. Some Christians, the way they speak, would you would think that they think that the law is bad. It has nothing to do with the Christian life. But he says, no, we know that the law is good if, it, if one uses it lawfully. There's a play of words there. He's saying if it's used properly, it's a good, it's a good thing. And so we need to use the law in accordance with its purpose and why God has given it. So again, let me make three observations. Number one. The law includes its teacher in the category of lawbreaker. The law includes its own teacher as, in, as being in the category of lawbreaker. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. So here he's saying that the law of God is not made for a righteous person. Now, some people, when they read that, think, okay, so who is that? Who's the righteous person that the law is not made for? And some people say, ah, oh, that's the Christian. So once you become a Christian, once you're made right with God, you're righteous. And so now the law is not made for you. And actually, there's, there's quite a few people who think that. That, and they might even point to this passage as teaching that, that, well, the law of God's not for us anymore. We don't, we don't need that. The problem I have with that is that I don't really see Paul saying that anywhere else in Scripture. And there's really nothing else in this book of First Timothy that supports that. I think there's another way of understanding this. You see there again in, in um, verse 9, it says, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a, a righteous person, uh, but, okay, so it has but there. It's just a contrast. It's not for the righteous person, but it's for who? It's for those who are lawless and rebellious. In other words, it's for the lawbreaker and the one who has rebellion in his or her heart. And so we ask the question, well, who is that? Any answers? Just maybe... Maybe all of us in Romans chapter three, verses nine to 12, listen to what the apostle Paul, same guy who wrote first Timothy, he said, what then are we better than they meaning are we Greek, uh, we uh, Jewish people better than the non-Jew says, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have all, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written, and then he quotes from the Psalms, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So who is it that's the lawbreaker? Who is it that's the righteous one? It's, it's no one. That's what Scripture teaches us. Now we might resist that we might think well no i'm not i'm not so bad and that's because you're comparing yourself to other people you can always point to somebody else and say well i'm not as bad as she is i'm not as bad as he is but that's not what god's doing he's <laughs> he's comparing us to himself and when that comparison is made no there's no no one righteous not even one 
So, but then, if that's true, then who is this righteous then? It says there, we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous. Well, who is that righteous? Well, I think the righteous are the ones that uh, think they're righteous. They're the ones that think they don't need the law. You might turn to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 9. I'm sorry, I don't have a page number for you. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 10. Jesus, uh, it's interesting. This occurs right after Jesus calls Matthew, who is a a despised tax collector. Talk about a sinner. He He calls him to be one of his followers. And then in verse 10, it says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he was not saying that they were righteous. He was saying that they thought they were righteous. He he wasn't saying that there actually are healthy that don't need this heavenly doctor. He was just saying there are people who think they're healthy. But the doctor comes for those who know they're sick. And they need to get help. And so they go to Jesus. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, I think that the righteous in in 1 Timothy are the ones who think that they don't need it. They actually need it, but they think they don't. It's interesting, if, if you think that you're righteous, you're not going to hear his call. Did you hear that? Remember in Matthew 9, 13, he said, we just read it. I, had, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, if, if you think you're okay, you'll never actually hear Jesus' voice. It's those who know they're not okay that hear Jesus and hear his call. And so the law applies to all of us, including those who teach it. And that was part of the problem with the situation in First Timothy there in the church in Ephesus is that there are these teachers that were reaching back in the Old Testament and coming up with all this wild stuff. And try, they wanted to teach about the law, but they were somehow not including themselves in what the law had to say. But the law doesn't do that doesn't let you do that. The law says that everybody is affected by it. We're all included in that category of lawbreaker, rebel. That's all of us. Second observation about using the law properly. The law forbids particular behaviors. The law forbids particular behaviors. I'll read this passage again uh, in a second, but, but there, it's being very clear that the law of God restricts our behavior. It changes what we do if we choose to follow it. And this is in contrast 
with the people who were teaching there in the church in Ephesus. There's a lot of speculation going on. You see that up in verse 4, 1 Timothy 1, 4. It says, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than the stewardship of God, which is by faith. The, the teaching of these men, these people, it was giving rise to speculation. And apparently it was also giving rise or giving permission for loose living. A similar problem was going on in the island of Crete, where Titus was there in the same position that Timothy was here in Ephesus. And at right, at the, right in the same time period, Paul also wrote a letter to Titus. It's in the Bible. It's the book of Titus. Now listen to part of what he said in chapter 1. He said, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. You see, these people who were teaching were lax in their own life concerning sin, concerning right and wrong. It talks about things in this passage like sordid gain, uh, um, you know, an unhealthy ambition to gain things, covetousness, lying, evil beasts, gluttony, being defiled. By their deeds, denying the one who they, they profess to follow. But the law of God is different than all of that. That's what Paul's saying here in 1 Timothy. You see, these teachers are teaching things that just lead to speculation. And they don't restrain their lives at all in living the right way. But Paul is saying, but the law is not like that. The law forbids particular behaviors. If you look here, it's fascinating here in verses 9 and 10, when Paul begins to lead off on a list, many people have seen underneath that list the Ten Commandments. And actually, I'll I'll help you see that hopefully here. The first two in verse 9 are like a title for the whole thing. It says, but it says, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. That's the title. We're lawbreakers, and on the inside, we rebel against God. That's the title. And then he has this string of um, certain adjectives, and they correspond, interestingly enough, to the, to the Ten Commandments. If you go down in, at the end of, uh, or near the end of verse 9, it says there are those who kill their fathers or mothers. That's the real clue. When you look at that, you see that that corresponds exactly to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Killing your mom and dad is not the same thing. It's the opposite. And if you go from there both backwards to the top and down to the bottom, you see that what follows actually lines up with the Ten Commandments. So let's 
start in verse 9, ungodly. First commandment is you, you shall have no other God. The word sinner there that follows in, in, in one sense can refer to those with idols in their lives. The second command is not to use, to have or use idol, idols. Unholy, there's a, a way you can see that relating to not taking the name of the Lord in vain. Profane, not keeping the Sabbath holy. Killing their fathers or mothers, that relates to the fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother. Murderers, that's obviously the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Immoral men and homosexuals relates to do not commit adultery, sexual sin. Kidnappers, that relates to the eighth commandment, do not steal, the worst kind of stealing imaginable, stealing a person. Liars and perjurers, that relates to the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. And do not covet is picked up later in his book. He doesn't actually have it here. But it's enough to see that underneath this list, there appears to be in Paul's mind the the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments. And the law, contrary to how the erring teachers were using it, it impacts ethical and moral behavior. The law of God does not lead to speculation and division. And it does not lead to excusing immoral and wrong behavior. The law of God is there and it corrects us. Is that You can't do that. You can't do this, God says. Scripture is also full of telling us what we should do. And if we would just get busy doing that, we wouldn't have time to do what we shouldn't do. But it does stand up and it says you can't do that. You cannot, you cannot have another God than the real God. You, you must not use idols in worship. You must not take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. You cannot be a murderer. You cannot be immoral sexually or a homosexual. You cannot practice that. The word of God just says it that way. You cannot steal. You cannot bear false witness. You cannot covet. You know, it's interesting that, that um, sometimes we hear the phrase Christian liberty thrown around. Actually, this is just a part of this issue that comes up in every generation. It's nothing new. Christian liberty means the freedom of a Christian to live as he or she wishes by hopefully following the spirit. That We don't have to have a bunch of rules over our lives that we make up, man-made rules, to try to keep our behavior in line like the Pharisees did. But every generation has to wrestle with that because we usually swing back and forth on the pendulum and overreact. Christian liberty doesn't get you get rid of the law amen the law just sits there god's already he put it on record matter of fact the last time i checked i think he wrote it in stone and there it sits and whatever you think of christian liberty you have to realize the law just still stands there and god still says you can't do this and you can't do that you can't do this and you can't do that it impacts our behavior We're free to follow the Spirit, but the will of God is still there that we must conform to. And actually, in our liberty, we have newfound strength by the Spirit to do the right thing. 
and not do the wrong. It's also interesting that, you know, before we go on, I'd like to say that, that, that many people are looking for a church. They want to be in a church. And that's a good thing. And they're looking for a church that, that has, um, you can get some good warm fuzzies while they're there, while you're there. And then the church, of course, though, shouldn't tell you what you can or cannot do. Church shouldn't do that. That's a no-no. Be nice, talk about God and everything, but don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Well, if you're looking for that kind of church, I'm sorry. You're not in the right place. But hopefully, and this is where we keep comparing ourselves to Scripture, hopefully we don't make up rules that God doesn't have. But if God makes it clear what his will is, it's actually our responsibility to tell you, you can't do that. You can't do that and profess to be a Christian. That's, that's part of his word. The law of God comes and it actually forbids particular behaviors. And by the way, these, this list here that Paul gives is not, it's not, it doesn't include everything. He just used examples in each case. And you see how he ends there in verse 10. He, at the end, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. These are just an example or two. The law of God stands and it impacts our lives. And it forbids particular behaviors. But now, thirdly, the law points us to Christ for forgiveness. I love verse uh, 11. Look at that. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. According to the glorious gospel. You see, the law points us to Christ. That's what the law does. The law comes and shows us God's will for our life and says, this, isn't, this is wrong. You can't do this and this and this. You want to, you do do, but that's wrong. Or maybe you used to do, but you don't now. But God's saying that, that was wrong. But then what does the law do? The law then brings us to Christ. In Galatians 3.24, it says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24, beautiful verse. The law has become our tutor. It leads us to Christ. It says, so that I might be justified by faith. You see, the law is saying, this is God's will. This is his standard of living. And it says, but you've fallen short of it. And then the law ushers you then to Jesus Christ and says, now in him, you can be forgiven and have a right relationship with God restored. Amen. And you have it. Galatians three says, by faith, you don't get made into a right relationship with God by keeping the law. Is that good news? That's why it's called gospel. Gospel means good news. A little more enthusiasm would be good. Is that good news? You get, you get justified. That means you get made right with God by faith. You just go to Christ and you believe him because on the cross, he took care of the penalty that you and I deserved because we broke the law. Amen. Oh, this is beautiful. I remember 
I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The law, well, let me, a couple years ago, one of our daughters broke her leg in cross-country practice. <clears throat> that was a great day. Hello, Mr. Boone. Yes. Okay. So, so we go to the hospital with her and, and she's in agony and, and they put her on the table and stuff and they x-ray her, you know, and she's laying there. Okay. And then they bring in the X, the picture and say, Mr. Boone, yes, she's, she's broke her leg. Here's, here's a crack. I mean, I didn't have to have any medical training. I could see it. Yeah. And I said, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Say, okay, honey, hop off. Let's go home. Is that what I did? No, no, no. The, the x-ray just showed us what the problem was. The x-ray didn't fix the problem. And that's the law. The law is like a, a divine x-ray of your soul. And it shows you, you are broken. But it doesn't fix you. It doesn't fix you. It leads you then to Jesus Christ who will fix you. Amen? He's the answer to it all, not the law. Man, watching some of these pictures of, of what's going on in Haiti, I, I saw one where the camera was inside, I guess it was an American military helicopter. Maybe you guys saw this too. I mean, there's been so much going on down there, but they had some relief supplies in the helicopter. But the people were so desperate, they couldn't land. So they would, they would hover and move and the camera was in the helicopter and, and they would move and the people were desperate. They threw aside all, any kind of vestige of dignity or self-control. They're crawling over each other. They're jumping over bushes and fences and they're just running after this helicopter, desperate. And then when the helicopter would get out where there was nobody underneath it, they would push some supplies out. It was the only thing they could do. They just push it out till the people came. Then they had to move again to try to push more out. And people were running desperate to get to that helicopter, to get these boxes and whatever was in those boxes. And friends, that's what you've got to be with Jesus. Desperate. See, if you're desperate, I'm a lawbreaker. Look at the law. Look at my own heart. Oh, I'm broken. Jesus, he'll fix you. By going to the cross, he died there and he took away your guilt. He'll fix you. Are you desperate? The law is to lead you to him. He, the law leaves us guilty and helpless and desperate and then enters Jesus. Praise God for that. So we need to use the law properly. That's the first thing that, that uh, Paul is saying here. And that means that the law includes its teacher as well as everybody else in the category of lawbreaker. And the law forbids particular behaviors and the law points us to Christ for forgiveness. But now, secondly, we need to view the gospel rightly. View the gospel rightly. Look at verse 11. And I'm going to make three observations here too. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. First of all, the gospel gives all the glory to God. You see where it says, according to the glorious gospel. Another translation is, 
according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You see, salvation is really all about God and his glory. You and I are not the centerpiece of the story of salvation. God is the center of it all. We are, in, by his grace and love, wrapped up in it. But he's the center of it all. If, if How many of you... Uh, how can I ask this so you're not embarrassed? It's okay. How many of you came to the Christmas Eve service that we had? Um, it was on Christmas Eve. Okay. Now, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you've got to ask for the CD from that, that service because we talked about the cause of Christmas. What caused Christmas? Uh, Paul Bickle better start making more CDs. But you want to listen to that or just go to the Internet and get it off the website. I won't spend more time on it, a lot of time on it here, but the great cause of Christmas is actually not you. It's God and his glory. But he gets the glory by saving us. It's not impersonal or bad or unloving towards us. It's just putting things in the right perspective. We want to make the gospel all about us. But the gospel is actually all about Jesus Christ and our triune God. The gospel gives all the glory to God. So many of you can, can quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? No one may boast. It's saying we have been saved, we have been made into, put back into a right relationship with God by grace. And it says through faith, we've believed in Jesus Christ we're made right with God, and it's all not from us. It's, it's from God, a gift of God. Gift meaning we didn't earn it. We just received it. And it says not as a result of works. In other words, it's not because we kept the law. We didn't work real hard and do everything right, and therefore, bing, we did just enough, and we're good enough now, and we get to heaven. It's not the way it works. It says... It's not that way so that no one may, what? Boast. Can you imagine if getting to heaven meant the way you get to heaven is that you keep the law and you do everything well and you do good? If that's the way you got into heaven, which is the way many people think, what kind of a heaven will it be? I'm going to be up there. <clears throat> there you are. And I'm going to say, hey, hey. You know how I got here? Man, did I preach. Man, I preach. And the other guy's going to say, yeah, but you know how, how I got here. And I'm going to say, shh, shh, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Will you be quiet? Act like a lady. <laughs> uh, now I know who watches CNN. <clears throat> I didn't plan that one. That just came out. So I'm, I'm going to say, let me tell you. Let me tell you what I did. And I did this and this and this. And I rattled off all the things I did so that I could make it into heaven. And then when I'm done, he says, now let me tell you, man. I helped old ladies across the street. And I did this and I did this. And what are we going to do? We're standing there boasting. Boasting. But the word of God says in heaven there's no boasting. Amen. 
We're not there boasting about ourselves because that's not, that had nothing to do with how we got there. There will be boasting, right? There actually is a boasting mentioned in the Bible. It's about the cross of Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ. We're going to be standing around talking about him. Let me tell you what he did. And we're going to be loving it. The gospel gives all the glory to God. Secondly, now this is, we've got time. This is, this is interesting. I don't know. I don't know if you're going to agree with this. I'm not even, no, I do agree with it. But I'm not used to saying it this way, and you're not used to hearing it this way. But I'm, and I think I have personally to grow in this. But I have to say it because it's what the Bible says. Are you ready for this? The gospel is about, you ready? A happy God. The gospel is about a happy God. See that? It says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Blessed or blessed means fulfilled. It means, quite frankly, it means happy. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed is the one who does this. Blessed is happy is the one. Happy is the one. Real happiness. Wow. Are you used to using that word to describe God? Let me ask you a question. Is your God happy? Is he? The gospel of the glory of the happy God. That's how this verse could be translated. And I suggest that whenever we read something in the scripture that pulls us up short and makes us stop and think, ah, is that really right? We might be just at a place that's very exciting for us. It's exciting because we're just about ready to get our minds changed and to let God change our minds about, about himself and about life and about how to walk with him. And I'm suggesting for you today that it's actually right that he is to talk about him as being happy. Let's think about this for a moment. In Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, Paul is at Mars Hill. He's there in Athens and he's preaching. And he says this, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God has made everything so he doesn't dwell in somebody's house. And when I went to Greece to visit our missionaries there, I stood at the spot where he preached this. And what is astounding is, is that you're standing there on this big rock and the Acropolis is right above you with this huge temple. It's amazing. And Paul's standing there saying, the God who made everything doesn't, I can just probably right behind him is the temple. And he's saying, he, he doesn't live in temples. Made by human hands, he says. And then he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything that you offer. Amen. He's saying God is completely self-sufficient. He has everything within himself. He doesn't need anything. 
He doesn't live in a house that you can build and you don't serve him with your hands as though he needed anything. When we talk about serving God, it's different than when we talk about serving each other. I serve you. I give you something or help you in some way that you needed. And you serve me. You, you contribute something to me that I needed. I hope that's not what you're thinking when you serve God. You and I serve God not because he needs it. He's not up in heaven saying, how can I get my purposes accomplished? I sure hope I can recruit enough people. I'm not going to get this done unless, you know, how's it going to work? It's not God. God is completely self-sufficient. He's complete. He has no needs. Some people, I've heard it even said that, that, that God existed and then he created us so that he could have fellowship with us. But the way they say it is in such a way that God had a lack He's kind of like, they don't say it quite this way, but they imply it's kind of like he was lonely. God was lonely, so he created a bunch of people so that he could have fellowship with them. I hope you don't think that's true. God has no needs. He is complete in and of himself. He is in and of himself happy. Happy. Psalm 50. What an amazing psalm. In Psalm 50, God is taking issue with his people, Israel. And in one place, he says this. Hear, O my people. This is beginning at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. And then he says, I am God. You're God. He's trying to make the point. I'm God. I'm your God. And then he goes on, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. (laughs) God is saying, You've got it all mixed up. You're doing the sacrifices. What, do you think by the sacrifices you're meeting a need in God? He, he's lacking something? He's hungry? Or he, he's missing something? And now you're going to take your sacrifices and meet a need in God? He's saying, no. He says, he introduced that whole part of the psalm by saying, remember, I am God. I'm not a man. I have no needs. I'm complete. The God God in his triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit. Mystery, but true. In, In this triune God is perfect completeness and satisfaction and, yes, happiness and delight. And that's the way God is. He is self sufficient, free, unhindered, satisfied, complete. He is happy. And actually, as you think about that, let it, let it impact how you view him. You know, I got the impression when I was standing down there as we were singing, especially that long, that last song, in my heart there rings a melody. And I was listening to everybody singing. I thought, we sound like a bunch of happy people. <laughs> Maybe it's because we have a happy God. Amen? You say, but pastor, you, you pastor, you. 
You talk about God's wrath, his displeasure with sin. Yep, that's right. He responds to sin in a way that we might not think is happy. We wouldn't use that word. But but God himself, well, is he a grump? Or is he happy, Who a happy God who has to deal with sin? It all fits together and sometimes our minds have trouble with it. But remember too, the words of Jesus when he was talking about entering in to eternity. Those words in one of his parables, it was given to the one, enter in to the joy of your master. Remember that? Enter in. You live, enter into the joy of your master. Eternity is described as the entering in to the joy of God. And that joy can be our joy. We taste it here. We experience it in its full there. Amen? Amen. The gospel is about a happy God. And this is really good news. Because it's not about a God who's lacking something and who's driving human history in certain directions so that he can get what he needs. It's about a happy God who has his plans that fit with his glory. And in his love, he sweeps us up into it. And we get to enter into his joy. Amen. Now, third and last. Third observation about viewing the gospel rightly. The gospel is to be passed on to others. Look again at verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul's saying, I've been entrusted with this message. This message about Jesus Christ dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And that through him we can be made right with God. What am I supposed to do with this message? Well, we're supposed to believe it. And we're supposed to stand firm on it. And we're supposed to share it. We've got to believe it and stand firm on it. That's what he's saying here in 1 Timothy. These people are rising up and they're, they're talking about the law in ways that negate the gospel. He says we've got to hold to the gospel, the true gospel. And then we need to share it with others. We need to share it here and we need to share it there. We've got to... Share it close and far in the Lehigh Valley and in unreached people groups. That's, that's what we've got to do. We share the gospel. Amen? We've been entrusted with it to believe it, to guard it, but to share it, to move out and share it with others. And you know what's interesting here? Again, we end up where we started. This passage puts law and gospel together. The law and the gospel go together. He's had this long talk about the law. And then he says it's all, he says it's according to the glorious gospel of the happy God. The law and gospel go together. You know, I said before, if you're looking for a church that's going to not tell you that certain things in your life have to change then you're in the wrong place. But I'm going I'm to say something else here. If you're looking for a church that's just going to hammer on people about what they need to do to change, but isn't going to tell them that there's a happy God who will forgive them and, ta- and change them and make them new, well, you're in the wrong place too. Because God puts them both together. Amen? 
There are people who are described by all these words in verses 9 and 10. There are people who are ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. They've killed their fathers or their mothers. They've murdered. They're immoral and they're homosexuals and they're kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And today are members of the church of Jesus Christ because of the gospel. Amen. These sins don't keep someone out. Remember, the law just pushes us to Christ. Amen. The law just shows you that, whoa, this stuff has to change in my life. And, and the law pushes us to Christ and Christ changes us by his grace and forgives us. Amen. 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 We need to use the law properly and we need to view the gospel rightly. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we, we come to a passage like this and I, anyway, I, I feel inadequate I feel inadequate to explain it properly. But I pray, O Father, that what has been said will be helpful. And that each of us, O Lord, would look up to you and let your word challenge us where we need to be challenged. And then when it does so, to run to Christ and find in him forgiveness and the power to change. Father, we thank you that all this is true and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless.